The reading this morning will come from Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sentichi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I, also, I ask you also, true companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Colby, <clears throat> for reading that scripture for us here this morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Ben. I'm the associate pastor here, um, and I just want to take a chance. Austin got all the microphone time earlier, so I didn't get a chance to greet you yet. So welcome. We're glad you're here um, as we look into this. I don't know if you noticed the title there in your bulletin, uh, The Joy in Losing a Fight. It might sound kind of strange. It might sound even cryptic. Uh, you might even be sitting there going, I don't know if this guy's ever been in a fight before. Because like the words joy and lose a fight, they don't go together, right? Like those two things are mutually exclusive. They are strange but maybe not as strange as Paul, talking about contexts in which there is bitter personal disputes, talking out of a context of crippling anxiety, uses words like rejoicing, using words like peace that surpasses understanding. There is something in the context of these words where things that, that in our minds ought not go together, go together. That the context of strife, of angst, of worry breed peace and rejoicing and trust. And so our task this morning is to understand what is it that Paul is commending to his friends? What is it that is that makes these two things go together that don't seem to go together? And what it seems to be is that Paul's, uh, Paul is, is exhorting these people to a change in mindset. Uh, a couple verses earlier, he told them, he said, uh, that there are, there, there are those whose mind are set on earthly things, the way that they see their lives, the way that they make decisions, the way that they process the world and their desires is set on, on things that belong to this earth, that which comes naturally to them. 
But he says there is a different way of existing in the world. There is a different way of occupying time and place and relationship. And it is one where we know the story of Jesus' life. We know the story of his resurrection. We know the story of his ascension into heaven. And if we know that story, then, then we think about our lives in a very different way. We enter into conflict. We enter into our anxieties in a different pattern of mind, one that is like that of Christ. And so he says there's these two mindsets that, that are warring within you. And when he says, stand firm thus in the Lord, he's saying, stand firm in the mindset, in the knowledge of God. And so as he writes the, these, uh, the rest of these verses, he is arguing, he is exhorting them to consider how their minds can be changed. And maybe the fastest way to change your mind is to lose a fight. Let me use a, a silly example for you. When I was a kid, right, early, young, uh, toddler, preschooler, you know, you're starting to figure out the, the lay of the land, the way the world works, right? And a and number of things are obvious to you at that stage, right? That there are things that you want, things you must have, an extra portion of, of snack, an extra minute of mom's attention, right? That, 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 that you want to win the game, right? And that there's obstacles to what you want, namely my brother and my sister who are older than me. Right, there was things that I wanted, there was obstacles that got in their way, and that, but I had means, I had agency to get what I want. And for me as a small child, so the record tells, it, it was, uh, the, my primary means was a plastic bat that I could use to follow and chase my big brother and sister around, whacking them, right? That I had uh, a, a knowledge that my brother was a, a, the, the people-pleasing type who who would not fight back with me. And so if I just raised my voice, if I just blew up in anger, if I swung my bat hard enough, I could get what I wanted in the world. And so the mindset of getting what I want, of controlling those around me came very, very naturally to me. What I did not know is that my parents, watching me as a child developing, began to have another desire, a longing for me to lose a fight, a longing for my brother to turn around when I chased him with my bat and to just push me to the ground once, right? See, in my mind, in the world that I lived in, I had the means, I had the power, I had the control. And just one push, one punch would assert to me that I was not the bigger of the two. I was not the stronger of the two. I did not, in fact, have control. Because when you lose a fight, your view of the world changes. Or maybe when you lose a fight, there is space for your view of the world to change, your view and your understanding to be something different. Paul writes to people who are struck with crippling anxiety and people who are in the midst of bitter personal disputes, and he says, if you lose those fights, 
you will lose the illusion that you are in control. And if you lose the illusion that you are in control, then maybe, just maybe, you can see Jesus. You can hear Jesus. You can be made new. So this morning, I want us to look briefly at three different fights, three different fights that maybe you are experiencing this morning, three fights that maybe, just maybe, you need to lose control over if you're to see and to think like Jesus. The first we find in the first paragraph, and it's the the joy of losing a fight with another. You see in verse 2, Yodia and Syntyche are um, not getting along so well. We don't know much about Yodia and Syntyche. We don't know much about their disagreement. Don't know if they were arguing. Uh, We don't know if plastic bats were involved. We don't know what was happening between these two women. But we do know a few things. We know that whatever it was that came between them uh, was of such a public nature that Paul, thousands of miles away, would have heard of it and heard of the rippling effects throughout the community there. We know that they, at least at, at one time, had viewed themselves as companions laboring side by side for the gospel, which means that their dispute would have been really personal. And really painful. We know that just by the the length of time that correspondence to go back and forth between Paul in prison in Rome and Philippi where these women were meant that this dispute was not one that was recent. It was not something that was trivial. It was not. It was something that had been going on for some time. And because I know the way that my own heart works... I know that both of these women in a long-standing personal feud would be absolutely sure that their perspective was the right one, that their actions had been done in justice, that their, uh, that their perspective was what Paul should commend. And so when Paul, writing a letter to the church, which, by the way, would be, you know, somebody would stand up front and read this to them. You think it's weird when we read this about Yodia uh, and Syntyche, right? Imagine if they were sitting there in the, in the proverbial pew next to you, right? Uh, if, if they're being called out. When he does that, he is, he is, is, is putting them and their conflict right in the hot spot. Because these are women who are in conflict because they have chosen what they want. They thought they had the means to get what they want. And they thought that it was okay to use those means to gain control. Silly example of the way human conflict works, right? When I was uh, in college, I lived in a dorm room with uh, two other guys, right? So there was three of us in the dorm room. But there was like a community of guys who practically lived in the room, right? So there was always like eight smelly uh, dudes in my college dorm room. And one day I came home from class and the room was full, but it was full of this horrendous odor. Like I opened the door and I was like, oh my gosh, what happened inside my room? And what happened in my room was my Roommates decided that they, uh, the free ferret they found on Craigslist should come live with us in our room. And so there was this little 
unpleasant-smelling rodents jumping all over the couch in my room. And I was livid. I was 100% sure what was going to happen, and that that ferret was going to be leaving my room. And not only that, I felt incredibly justified in that perspective. How dare they, they bring an animal into our room without talking to me first? How dare they, they, they not consider my wants? Don't they know that I would never, ever want a ferret in my room? Right, children? My kids are sitting in the front row. They know I would not want a ferret in my room. And so the natural way that conflict plays out is that there is competing desires on two different parties. And what we do in, in conflict is we try to control one another, right? And so my mind starts going, okay, how do I reassert control over the ferret situation, right? And so you start going through the options, right? Well, okay, I could go rat them out to the RA. Obviously, ferrets were not an allowed accessory to your dorm room, um, I could rat them out to the RA, but that would have other consequences, right? Uh, I, could, I could get really loud and really angry and see if they back down, right? I could, um, I could uh, just prop the window open tonight when I go to bed and, and see what happens, see if the ferret's still around in the morning. I could put it on the elevator and send it to the third floor and let the chips fall where they may, right? Because in a conflict... The natural way that we do conflict is we try to manipulate, we try to control, we try to gain our uh, power over the others. And we look for people who will tell us that we are doing exactly the right thing. But Paul, looking at this situation with Yodia and, and Syntyche, says that there's a different way. There's a different way that these women can approach this conflict other than the escalating series of control and manipulation. There's another way for them to fight with another. And he says this. He says, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. Take up the same mindset. Take up a shared mindset together on what is godly, on that which comes from God. And do you know what that would sound like to Yodia and Syntyche? It would sound a lot like losing, right? If you're in the midst of a conflict, an argument with a roommate, a a, a dispute with a business partner, right? And somebody says, agree in the Lord. That sounds to you like, what about the cause of justice? What about the, the, the implications of what needs to happen? Whose side is right? And Paul does not take a side. Paul doesn't settle the the dispute. Paul does not condemn or demonize either side. He said, you ladies do not belong to those who must get their way. He says, you two ladies belong to those who know the story of Jesus. You two ladies belong uh, among those who know that they share one family table. Verse 5, he uses a strange word. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And if you looked at, uh, if you have a different translation in front of you, you could look at uh, almost as many translations as you look at, you'll get a different translation of this word. The, the ESV that we're looking at says reasonableness, right? But it, we could look at some others and say gentleness, 
or forbearance or graciousness, even moderation. It's this word, you know, like, whoa, those words mean very different things. But here's what's going on. This is a word uh, that is often attributed to somebody who has, has power, has agency, and chooses to not use uh, their agency. Somebody who has power, who has, has control, and chooses to not exercise their control on their behalf. Right? So Aristotle uses this as one who is owed the larger share but is, is content with the smaller the definition uh, says not insisting someone who doesn't insist on the the letter of the law that they have a right to, but allows someone else. Paul is saying that if you uh, forsake the mindset of of your natural self, which is an ever escalating series of control and manipulation, then you have another option because you know that you have Jesus. So like he says in another letter, he says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Why not rather lose your argument with one another and in that space discover the mindset of Christ? He reminds them, ladies, both of your names are written in the book of life. And if you are a person who, uh, if you know how your name got there, through the sacrificial blood of Jesus on your behalf, it is impossible for you to maintain your patterns of resentment and control. In the midst of losing a fight, you have the space, you have the ability, you have the opportunity to discover the mind of Christ. And in that way, we can rejoice in the Lord always. And again, even in relational failure, rejoice. But there's another fight that he goes on to talk about, and it's not a fight between two people. It's a fight that exists within ourselves. In verse 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's one of the most famous Bible passages, and it's one of the most famous Bible passages because it's one that strikes closest to home. Because if we look out at this room, it is nearly certain that every single person sitting in this room carries anxiety, and not just minimally so, right? That if the statistics play out, there's 20% of us in this room, one out of every five of us has some version of an anxiety disorder. We live in a country that spends, you know, $42 billion a year on, on treating anxiety-related uh, illnesses and conditions. We are a people who are anxious. And we are people who are uh, concerned with controlling our experience of anxiety. And so Paul writes to those of us who are anxious, just as he wrote to those who are in the midst of conflict, and he says that there is a different way. So he says, think about it, uh, think about it for a minute here. Where does anxiety comes, come from? Anxiety begins, anxiety starts where our control fails. So if you think about your life and you start thinking about what you hope will happen in the future, and guess what? You have no control over your future. 
And so you will worry, and you will be filled with anxiety. You uh, are concerned that other people think well of you, that people like you, that people think you're cool or admirable. And guess what? You have no control, no control over the way that other people perceive you. But that doesn't stop us from worry and concern. You are anxious about your finances. You're worried about your safety. You fret over your health, all of which, guess what, you have no control over. And so then, because we can't control the things that give us anxiety, we start trying to control the, that we have anxiety, right? And we, we try to, to go and we, 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 we do the yoga thing or the mindfulness thing. Nothing wrong with that other than if you think that that's going to heal your anxiety. We try to find little minute trivial things to obsess over because it's like I, I can control whether my dishes are done and clean at night. So I'll focus all of my energy there, right? We, we try to distract ourselves and deny our failures, some of us try to become indifferent and cold like the Stoics of old uh, to our emotions. Some of us try to become self-assured and so self-confident that those things can't touch us. And so we try to control our anxiety by having anxiety over our anxiety. And you see the vicious loop that starts to happen, right? But Paul comes to those who are anxious, and he says, do not be anxious not to shame us, but to remind us that we do not have to listen to the natural mindset, that there is another way of experiencing the world. He says, if you're anxious, your mind is set on the wrong thing, namely controlling your problem. He says, but there is another reality that you can, can realize, and it happens right here at the end of verse 5. He says, the Lord is at hand. There is a God who is available to you, a God who hears your requests, a God who has access to a peace that is simply outside of this world, outside of our comprehension. And guess what? The future that you can control, guess whose job that is? The, the, the relationships that you can't mend, guess whose job that is? The, 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 um, the experience of your finances, your safety, your health, you can't control those things because it's not your job. The picture here is, is that we are able to let go of those things because we see that the Lord is at hand. You know when I'm always anxious is when it's my turn to preach and, and whichever one of you stands up to read the scripture or reading the scripture, all of a sudden my body starts tensing up and filling with anxiety because I know that the seconds are counting down when I have to come up front and start talking in front of a crowd of humans. Do you know when I'm never anxious is when it's Matt's turn to preach. In fact, when it's Matt's turn to preach, the more difficult, the more complicated the passage, the better, right? I'm like, let's pop some popcorn. Let's watch what he does with this thing, right? Because it's his job to do. It's his work that needs to be done. If we only could recognize 
If we could only remind ourselves that because of Christ, because of what Christ has demonstrated and showed us, we would look at our future and we would realize that's not my job. Easier said than done, right? Which is why Paul exhorts us what to do in our anxiety. In verse 6, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but instead, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You see, the pattern, the experience of anxiety, uh, being in Jesus is not going to free you from any experience of anxiety. I don't think so. It didn't, Jesus himself experience anxiety, if you remember this story uh, in the garden. But what being of the mindset of Christ, of knowing whose we are and knowing our place in the world would remind us that God is at hand and we can go to him. You see, the natural mindset traps us in a vicious cycle of worry, but the mind of Christ gives us an active step. He says, are you not able to sleep because your teenager hasn't come home for, for, for the night? He says, use those minutes uh, to hold a prayer vigil for uh, your child. He says, you, 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 you feel overwhelmed and worried because your retirement account it does not have the right numbers next to your name anymore. He says, use that anxiety as an opportunity to, to practice thanksgiving. Are you so embarrassed at a public failure that you feel like you can never show your face in public again? He says, turn your eyes to the one who says he is turned towards you. He says, when you experience anxiety and when you lose your, your fight to control your anxiety, you have the opportunity to discover something far better than control. You have the opportunity to discover the mind of Christ. And because of that, we can rejoice in the Lord always, even in the midst of our anxiety. We can rejoice. The third thing, the last thing, the joy in losing a fight, the fight that hasn't even started yet. If you hear, see here in this movement of the, the last paragraph we have in front of us here today, uh, Paul is saying you don't have to wait for the moment uh, when anxiety has, has disabled you. You don't have to wait till the, to the wrestle match over control has destroyed your relationships in order to see rightly. You see, we think that people and circumstances are ours to control, but we can actively, if we are filled with the Spirit of Jesus, remind ourselves that that is not the case. So Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's anything of excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think, set your mind upon these things. He's saying, look out in the world, and as you go through life, pay attention and look for those redemptive aspects in your life. 
redemptive aspects. What's fascinating here is that Paul, he, Paul loves lists, okay, but this is not a normal Paul list. This is a list that you would gather if you gathered all the, the wisdom literature of, of famous Greek philosophers. You would get list with vocabulary a lot like this. It's a kind of list that we, we could probably find other five positive adjectives, and, and the sentence would work the same. He's saying, as you go through your life, your ordinary life, the life that's lived in, in your job and, and is down at the FedEx Forum and is, is lived at your house, you can see and hear those redemptive stories. You can choose to, to the, the books and movies Right, that tell you, uh, don't tell you messages that say, hey, you take care of you. That's what's most important in life. But you can choose narratives that remind you of sacrificial love and service because guess what? They point you to Jesus. When you, uh, go to the, when you go to FedEx Forum, you can watch a group of grown men delight in each other's presence. And you can be reminded of the kind of community that, that Jesus can bring in our midst. Or you can go to FedEx Forum and get really into the ref you suck chant, right? And I'm really struggling to find how ref you suck is going to do anything productive and healthy in your life. Right? You're going to walk away from a lost game going, they're to blame. Their fault. We must fix this. But if your mind is on the redemptive stories, you'll see little pictures of Jesus out there on the court, even in the loss. You can turn your attention to news, stories, social media, right, that'll catastrophize everything in the world. If your diet is, is nothing but the New York Times and Twitter and Fox News, you will go through life in utter panic because the world is ending and the sky is falling, or you can sit down with humans and hear stories of how Jesus has been present in the midst of catastrophes throughout their whole life. We can choose to set our minds on redemptive stories. And... We can fill our mind with redemption's story. When Paul says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, he's not just saying, look out for the good in the world that you see around them. He's saying, turn your eyes to the message that I have preached to you. Turn your eyes to the story of Jesus. Because you don't just need redemptive things that hint at Jesus. You need explicit reminders that there is a God who made the world and who loves you dearly. There is a God who made the world who loves you dearly. In fact, he loves you so dearly that he sent his only begotten son. That while you cursed his name, he died on your behalf so that you could be a part of his Family, that's a story that your mind has to be filled with if you're going to be ready for the fight that hasn't happened yet, for the relational conflict that's going to destroy your world, for the anxiety that will bring you to your knees in agony. You need to know the story of redemption, which is why we're here. 
you can proactively come into this place where, where, where the pattern of our worship service is meant to, to remind you over and over and over again that that story is real and that you engage in your relationships and you engage with the, the man or woman in the mirror through that story and not the story of this world. We choose habits and rhythms and disciplines Things like a community that will disappoint us and frustrate us and lead us into conflict. We choose uh, habits and rhythms like prayer and reading of the Word because we need to know not just vaguely about redemptive stories, but about the redemption that is ours in Jesus. Because maybe the most important fight for you to lose is the one that hasn't started yet. The one where you're Uh, heart will be tempted and pulled to believe the stories and the mind of this world, but instead Jesus gives you the invitation to rest in him, to rest in his love, to rest in his concern. Because the joy of losing a fight is that maybe, just maybe, in the midst of losing, we can see Jesus, we can hear Jesus, we can be transformed by him. Which is why Paul tells us, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say, rejoice. As you go home from here, I don't know what lies in front of you. I don't know what anxieties and what relational turmoil you brought into this space when you came. I don't know the the fights that are around the corners, but I do know that there is an inclination in you that will want to take those things, those fights, and you will want to tell the story of the world, one that is a battle of control, one that is a battle of strength, one that is a battle of will. But as those who know and are loved by Jesus, you can tell a different story, that in the midst of that conflict, in the impossible Uh, and the impossibleness of those situations, we can see and hear and know the story of Jesus. Because when we lose a fight and we lose any notion that we're in control, when we lose the notion that we're in control, that we can find the mind of Jesus. The joy of losing a fight is finding Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say, rejoice. Father, we come to you as people who need to be healed, as people who need to be reminded, as people who experience the pressures and the burdens of our anxieties and our failed relationships so heavily. God, would you free us from those things? God, would you turn our eyes to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and would we rejoice in him today? pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.